3: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Hepatitis B hits Asian Pacific Islander and Black American communities particularly hard. Now, a bill just signed by Governor Newsom will require hospitals to offer testing for Hep B and C. We'll learn more. But first, what does it take to save a language? Last month, Marie Wilcox of Woodlake, California, the last known fluent speaker of the indigenous language Wuchumni, passed away Dozens of indigenous languages across California are disappearing or have only a few fluent speakers left. We meet people committed to revitalizing these languages right after this news. This is Forum. I'm Meena Kim. Marie Wilcox of Woodlake, California, passed away last month. She was the last known fluent speaker of the indigenous language Wuchumni. Before she died, Wilcox dedicated herself to preserving the language by putting together a Wuchumni dictionary and recording herself speaking. Here she is in a New York Times profile video by Emmanuel Vaughn Lee. <laughs> Similar efforts are underway for other Indigenous languages, with few fluent speakers. We look this hour at what it takes to save these languages. And joining me now is Phil Albers, Cultural Activities Coordinator for the Karuk Tribe Northeastern Humboldt County. Phil Albers, thanks so much for joining us. Hi Phil, are you there?
4: Hi. Yeah. Thank you. Aiki. That is the way, Philabers. Nakadukuaar. The name of the country is Dinaktipis. Pritjes. Much mm-hmm. ihan sasi kadulusi. The nickname is Kial. Terlen. Kadukhasni acicha. So, um, yeah. My name is Philabers. I live up in uh, Orleans, California. I'm a Member of the Kaduk tribe. I work for the Kaduk Tribal Tanaf program. And uh, I'm really happy to to be involved today.
3: Well, we're really happy to have you here as well. Thanks so much. Um, joining Phil is Jennifer Malone, a member of the Wochumni tribe, and also daughter of Marie Wilcox. Jennifer, thanks so much for being here.
0: Thank you for having me.
3: And I have to express just my condolences for your for your recent loss, and and so appreciative of you being here, given that it is so recent. I know you worked with your mom to write this Chamni dictionary. How how long did this take? What was your role in that process with your mom?
0: My role was to help her edit it and um, help her create sentences because we p- did put sentences in, in there with the words so that you could understand and try to learn a phrase when you're uh, learning the language. So Um, I uh, was her driver and her caretaker.
3: Um, She really dedicated many of the last years of her life to this. Why was it so important to her?
0: Well, to start with, she said that she wanted someone to talk to. And so we, we were all eager to learn so that we would be able to talk to her in the language and it was her connection with her grandma that raised her and she just really enjoyed speaking the language singing in the language praying in the language
3: she clearly understood the importance and and gravity of keeping it yes do you think her her status as the the last fluent speaker would ever affect her emotionally? Like she would really take that in?
0: Yes, because she felt like she was end of the trail, you know. And with us working with her, it just made her happy.
3: Phil Albers, it was wonderful to hear you use Kruk to introduce yourself. What are the ways that you use the Karuk language now to try to keep it alive? Is this one of them? Phil Albers, are you there? Oh, yes.
4: I'm sorry about that. Um, yeah, I have a little bit of connectivity issue sometimes. Um, I'm sorry. Could you repeat the question?
3: Yeah. I, I just was saying that you yourself, it's also really important to you to keep the Karuk language really thriving. And I was just asking how you use it. I was struck by how you introduced yourself immediately using the language. Is that one of the ways that you really keep it out there?
4: It is. It is. Um, I use it quite frequently at home. Um, I won't say in in a immersion or um, 100% way, but I, I do use it quite frequently with a lot of personal phrases and um, and I use it with my children, I use it in my work. So I use it on a daily basis and not just within certain places um, like my home or my office
3: yeah.
4: uh, or even bound to my presentations, even at the store in possibly sometimes Eureka, which is um, nearly two hours one-way drive. I will speak in Kaduk in the public, um, sometimes directly to complete strangers. And, and most of the time I get a response, they say, is that Chinese? <laughs> <laughs> but then um, I say no, and um, I let them know. And then from, from there, I'm just able to incorporate that into how I
3: interact you really on a had daily a- basis. You really had a drive at an early age to learn this, but I understand that that it was actually hard to convince your grandmother, for example, to speak it to you. Why was she reluctant to do that?
4: Yes, that, that's accurate. She was very um, resistant, even, where she would say, you don't need to learn this language. And I believe that was primarily because of her experience at boarding schools and her experience growing up and living in Siskiyou County area where speaking your native indigenous language was was a very bad thing and serious consequences for that would happen. Um, and then there was an, so, so there was a, that element of her wanting to protect her, Grandchildren and her community that she cares about, but also still having that very real, very present traumatic response after years of conditioning and abuse and such hurtful times while she was young.
3: What changed her mind and what has it been like for you? to learn the language and, and speak it so frequently, what does that do for you?
4: Well, what I think one of the largest factors for her was um, a lot of my other family, my cousins and siblings, um, really began supporting each other in our own efforts. And um, I really feel like it was my nieces who um, came forward. And well, I'm sorry, not my nieces, my, um, my younger cousins, I think of them as sisters and nieces, but um, <laughs> to um, go forward with language learning and and then and then it became a um, widely accepted community effort where even um, distant extended family members and close family friends were beginning to reach out to her, and she finally felt like there was some safety in embracing that indigenous language that she had a treasure within her that she could share that would not hurt people but would actually help them and and for me that's exactly what it does being able to put together thoughts express my emotions and ideas in that kaduk language helps me connect and resonate with more closely with the land that i'm living on and that i'm from as well as how I internally process things around me.
3: Jennifer Malone, similarly, what is your relationship with the Wachumni language now? I know that you are often called upon to give offerings or prayers in your community.
0: Um, yes, I'm still um, working with Owens Daly, of bishop from Bishop, and um, teaching classes on... Um, Mondays and Thursdays. And I uh, reached out to our family because they really understand now how important this was to mom asking them if they want to join us and just really trying to uh, reach out to all of our family members. So i have um, still keeping it going and doing our cultural activities in different areas with um, using our language for with our uh, materials and baskets and different things like that. So we are still keeping it going and I'm um, working with um, our youth to um, keep it going and um, working with my great grandson. He's four years old and he's uh, really catching on good.
3: We're talking with Jennifer Malone and Phil Albers about Breathing New Life into Indigenous Languages, and I want to bring into the conversation now Zachary O'Hagan, a postdoctoral scholar in the Department of Linguistics and manager of the California Language Archive at UC Berkeley. Zachary O'Hagan, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
3: Can you give us a sense of how many languages in California are considered, quote unquote, endangered, and, and what often led to this?
1: It's um, a difficult number to arrive at with precision just because um, there are, are so many unique cases around the state, but I think to give uh, a bit of context um, that's often uh, considered to be the case that they're from Baja California up to what is now more or less the Oregon border. There were somewhere upwards of 80 indigenous languages spoken in the region, which is approximately a third of the linguistic diversity in all of North America. is concentrated wow. just in Baja and what was formerly called Alta, California. Um, and the majority of those languages now no longer have what we would refer to as first language speakers. Um, and depending on exactly which of uh, these regions, uh, speakers of a language might have found themselves in, um, processes of, uh, suppression of, and violence against speakers of these languages may have occurred earlier or later. So, um, in areas that were affected by the Spanish Franciscan mission system, that process began in the late 18th century with the founding of the San Diego mission, for example, in 1769. Um, for languages, uh, in... Uh, more Northern California and in Eastern California and the Sierras. Um, They were less affected by the mission system, though not unaffected. And that process really, um, that process of suppression and violence really began uh, with the gold rush and the annexation of California and later California um, statehood. Um, And both of those periods um, long predate, I think what is recently becoming more well known to people um, as uh, this period of uh, removal of children into boarding schools by the US government.
3: Right. Uh, We're talking with Zachary O'Hagan, a postdoctoral scholar at the Department of Linguistics at UC Berkeley. And we're talking about how Californians are working to preserve indigenous languages. More after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're learning about efforts to fortify Indigenous languages with few first speakers left. And we're joined by Phil Albers, Cultural Activities Coordinator for the Karuk tribe in northeastern Humboldt County, Jennifer Malone, member of the Wachumni tribe, her mother, Marie Wilcox, was the uh, last fluent speaker of Wachumni and created a dictionary before she died just last month. Also with us is Zachary O'Hagan, a postdoctoral scholar at the Department of Linguistics and manager of the California Language Archive at UC Berkeley. You, our listeners, are with us as well. And I want to ask you, if you speak an Indigenous language, do you worry about it dying out? And how do you hold on to the practice of one? Do you consider yourself a language or culture keeper keeper generally? What do you do? How do you do it? Give us a call 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at kqed.org, or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, Zachary... Oh, Hagen, I'm I'm wondering um, if you can tell us what it takes to actually save a language. What are the processes? Because I wonder if there aren't any first speakers left, what is the hope of, of maintaining and ultimately revitalizing it?
1: I think um, there are two different kinds of situations one the one that you're asking about and i'll just briefly allude to the kind of situation that phil Albers was talking about just a second ago where there is there are still first language speakers and i just want to highlight that you know a major effort that um is necessary to um maintain languages in those cases is, is to work through the difficulties that um that speakers had early in life that prevented them from speaking these languages later in life when he was speaking about his grandmother Um, In cases where there may no longer be first language speakers, um, this is an area where um, other kinds of actors come into the situation. That might be linguists, that might be anthropologists, that might be um, indigenous community members who um, recorded um, aspects of language before there were no um, first language speakers anymore. And in particular, this is an an area where um, archives can come into play. So um, materials uh, which might be... Um, written records of languages or sound recordings or more recently video recordings um, that were kind of can have been created by many different kinds of people um, those are often um, stored in archives and um, the work there is um, facilitated by people like linguists in creating tools like dictionaries that are not too technical and accessible by people who want to learn a language. Um, descriptions of grammar that again are not too linguistically technical and able to be used by people who want to learn languages. And I think crucial the crucial um, bit is for these materials um, to be either introduced for the first time or reintroduced into, into the communities where they were made, often in a period where things were typically extracted and not always returned um, to Hi. community members.
3: So then is the California Language Archive really working to try to collect these materials from private owners?
1: So we um, work with a few different kinds of stakeholders. We work with, um, we have a large collection of things that we have inherited over the years from everyone from Berkeley graduate students to academic linguists from other institutions to sometimes indigenous community members who have opted to archive things with the archive here. Um, And more recently we have been working to um, in effect reach out to um, especially academic linguists who may not have, who may have created materials but not archive them and to, on behalf of uh, these sorts of language efforts to better collect that and make uh, increase awareness about materials that exist still in private hands, which is quite common.
3: Hmm. Let me bring Karina Lunagiri into the conversation, a board member for Advocates for Indigenous California Language Survival, which is an organization focused on preserving and restoring California's Indian languages. Karina Lunagiri, thanks so much for joining us
2: so good morning um thank you for having me
3: really appreciate having you and i I wonder what are the things that the um that the advocates of indigenous California language survival are doing now to try to to basically do the kinds of things that Zachary O'Hagan's um Department is also trying to do, which is to really understand the importance and to re, really revitalize these Indigenous languages.
2: It's so what's great is that Eichel's is a board completely um, um, with uh, California Indian, you know, uh, language champions. Mm. So it's it's run by Native people and people actually in the field. So uh, we have um, our board of directors are um, who are, you know, um, participants in their language programs, Um, many of them are teachers, Uh, many of them are part of the master apprentice program, where they uh, pair a master speaker with an apprentice. Um, A a lot of them um, have, uh, you know, including myself, um, come from a community where we have no living speakers. And so we're using archival material, Um, for language revitalization. So there's a really good mix, um, of group with experience um, and knowledge and actually, you know, in the field and understand, you know, the the struggle that that we all face. Um, So there's um, several different programs. We have the Breath of Life program, which is a, um, we have this, the uh, workshop every two years, and it's in collaboration with UC Berkeley. And we um, have uh, or invite um, California Indian uh, communities to come in, and we pair them with a linguistic partner. And they basically get a crash course in linguistics. They learn how to do archival research. Um, they learn how to decipher the, their materials, how to use their materials. And by the end of the week, um, they produce a project. Mm-hmm. And so they, they go home with this wealth of knowledge. And me, myself, I was part of the first uh, Breath of Life um, program that they had back in 1996. And the, the um, linguist I was paired with was actually a student at the time. And we've been working together for 26 years. And so um, it's also about, you know, networking and in um, creating these, you know, lifelong, you know, relationships that really help um, languages grow. So, in my case, I was um, our language hadn't been spoken for 70 years, and so after 26 years of work and working with our community um, and with with the linguist, um, you know, we published um, a dictionary. Um, I think it was like in 1996. It's an open source dictionary. We teach language classes. We're really moving and pushing, you know, pushing forward but it, and it all has, it does stem back to the program that Eichel's, um, provides. They, they do wonderful work as well as, um, as other programs.
3: I was struck by the anecdote that, that you are currently providing classes. Eichel's is the indigenous California language survival. Um, and that you have elders, some in their seventies learning the language for the first time in their lives.
2: Right, right. Yeah, no, it's great. It's just such a joy to, to, to see them, you know, and, and, um, I would have thought with technology, it might have been a little bit more difficult for you know our elders to log on, but in the majority of, of our students are actually you know people in their sixties and seventies and, and even eighties. So wow. it's um, yeah, and it's it's great because they're they're um, they're speaking their language you know you know for the first time, and you know they're really enjoying it, and I'm, I'm just glad that we're able to provide something like that you know for them.
3: Phil Albers, I understand that becoming a father really factored into your drive to speak Karuk. Can you talk a little bit about that and what the experience has been of using it with your family, trying to teach it to your kids?
4: Yes, uh, that that really was a big selling point for me. I, actually, I am a um, success story, I guess you could say, with Eichel's. Um, Early on, once I I got through some of the barriers with finding dedicated master speakers, I became an apprentice in the Master Apprentice Language Learning Program, and I actually went from a beginner vocabulary-based speaker to a fluent speaker, and actually now I am a master speaker that I have an apprentice um, but but that sparked and, and came from once I learned that I was having my first son, um, I looked in the mirror and I said, "I have nine months to be a fluent speaker so that I can um, teach my son Kadug for his first language. And that was a driving motivation, not only for myself and for what I perceive as one of the most beneficial ways. To raise my children, but also for the entire community and all of those um, family members and elders and ancestors that have gone on before me, and they they lived through the the scary traumatic times of being Indigenous, knowing your language and culture, and they survived it down, and I, I really felt a personal um, responsibility to honor them by trying to instill that within my children and my own family so that that was a lot of the motivation and and that was successful for the first uh four or five years my son primarily spoke kaduk um almost 100 percent of the time and then once he got into a head start system that was not a kaduk immersion head start system Uh, It was a tribal head start, a Yurok tribal head start, which was great for incorporating language, but was not a a Yurok immersion school. Um, He learned very quickly that he needed to use English to effectively communicate outside of our family.
3: Yes. though what I think you're really bringing to light is just how language maintenance is so intertwined with cultural maintenance, it sounds like, Phil.
4: Yeah, I really believe that. And and I'm not only referring to a traditional cultural context, that also includes a contemporary cultural context where we can, we still do and can still go gather acorns or um, work on making you would bows or basketry and weaving, um, hunting, all of these things, these actions that we can still do today. Granted, there are different tools and different processes for that, they're still cultural acts because we are still the Kadu people. And that is still part of our culture and language being inter interwoven there and having such a strong relationship is critical.
3: You've also talked about how language maintenance is intertwined with your own sense of identity. Can you explain what you mean by that?
2: Well, I I learned really, you know, young that um, that language um, really is, is your identity. It's so tied with it. It's tied with our world view. Um, When I was in the fourth grade, right, we all had to do these, um, these mission projects. And I remember um, telling, telling a, a classmate, well, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, from the missions, I'm Indian from the missions. And she said, oh, if you're Indian, then speak it. And I was totally stumped because I couldn't speak my language. So I, something about that really stuck with me, where I really realized that it was, it was, it's tied with identity so closely tied. So it was something that always stayed in the back of my mind, and you know, throughout my life, um, I, I even as a young person, I said I'm gonna, you know, at some point, you know, learn my language.
3: Yeah. Uh, let me go to caller Kim in the in Peninsula. Hi, Kim. Thanks for waiting.
5: Uh, yes. Hello. Thank you. Um, I uh, live out uh, toward the coast, south coast in San Mateo County. And there's a um, community here of uh, farm workers that come from Oaxaca. I'm a, they speak Latino, which is an indigenous language there in, in Oaxaca. And uh, I, I'm a database background, and I wrote a web interface for a dictionary. Um, so really it's for me, so I could sort of take a stab at how many groups with Chatino, but it turned out that um, you know there are quite a few uh, indigenous language varieties in uh, southern Mexico. Um, Chatino is one group, Zapotec another, and then Mixtec. And I was wondering, is there a um, community organization or some uh, group that get in touch for? Um, these languages that we've been talking about here in uh, California.
6: Hmm.
3: Zachary O'Hagan, do you know?
1: I think I missed a crucial part of the caller's question about what kind of organization he's, he's looking for. But um, well, Introductions
5: I'm... to um, uh, communities that, that, do, that speak Indigenous languages. Uh, I have this, this software that I wrote uh, for a web interface for a dictionary. is really more of a platform, so it could be used for any language. And so I'm interested in talking to people
1: about that. I um, I could refer you, I'm not as familiar with the Chitino community in California, but there is a, a set of actually um, indigenous Chatino linguists that have been based at uh, off and on at the University of Texas at Austin over many years. Um, and I would refer to you to their Chatino project um, and um, contacts that they would probably have with Chatino communities around the country.
3: Well, Kim, thanks for the question and let me actually go to another Kim in San Jose. Hi Kim.
6: Hi. Hi. I just have a comment, actually. Uh, My daughter goes to university in North Wales, and the county that her university is in has a 60% uh, native um, Welsh-speaking... 60% native Welsh speakers in her county in Wales. And I think I just wanted to highlight that Wales is an incredible success story for revitalizing in an in indigenous language and in bringing it back into general use. Many of her classes are in bi- are bilingual in Welsh. Every sign is primarily in Welsh and is translated into English. Everything has to go out in Welsh and English and you can even get a teaching certificate as a bilingual Welsh speaker. Hmm. So it's th- It's really a success story on the planet of maintaining, of revitalizing an indigenous language.
3: Well, Kim, thanks for sharing that story. Yael tweets, please encourage listeners to upload audio, video, and text content to Wikisource and Wikimedia Commons to ensure it is archived and searchable in perpetuity for free. Carol writes, I'm delighted that you have these guests today. Jennifer Malone, you are working on trying to get your mother's dictionary published. Where are you at with that?
0: Uh, we're still finalizing the editing part of it, and uh, and hopefully by the end of the month, we're planning on um, trying to contact someone to be able to get it published.
3: And Zachary O'Hagan, can you help us understand just how the importance of working to revitalize these languages is also just so Intertwined with our understanding of California and who we are as Californians and our history?
1: Yes, I think especially in areas of the world where there was not, uh, where there are no written records from before the invasion of Europeans, um, our understanding of how and where languages were spoken and how they were related to each other is often a huge window into um, the history of the state of California, but of all regions in the world where you um, apply these kinds of methods and. Um, I'll, 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 say that.
3: Yes. Uh, well, thanks. Thanks for saying that. And Phil Alvarez, I, I want to go to you for just a last thought. There are many things that I was struck by in terms of your description. I I'd asked you the question about language maintenance and cultural maintenance, but I was curious to also hear from you about how language has been intertwined with your own sense of identity as well.
4: Oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't catch that that last part.
3: Just in terms of how you've talked about how being able to speak Kharuk always felt so much more, Karuk always felt so much more like you being yourself, that it helped you understand yourself. And I was just curious what you meant by that, how it has informed your own identity.
4: Oh, yeah. Yeah. As mentioned before, I think language is incredibly critical to understanding your own identity. Um, And I refer to that as a cultural identity. But for me, the way that I can process thoughts, emotions, and actions is more consistent with how the Kaduk language is processed, how you formulate statements, the way that they're not, and I'm not binding that to grammar or specific uh, subject, verb, order in that context but just simply being able to um see something with the detail or the the process of you go here and then here and that leads to here for me the kind language really embraces that for how i think and how i process things so Mm -hmm. it, it really comes out of line
3: it was beautiful hearing it today. Phil Albert of the Karuk tribe, Jennifer Malone of the Chumni tribe, Karina Luna Geary of the Mutsun and Tamiyan Ohlone heritage. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.